There's lots of advice telling you how to set and reach your goals. But before you dive in, it's a good idea to know God's plan for your life. Find joy in pursuing the next steps God has for you in Dr. David Jeremiah's new book, Forward, Discovering God's Presence and Purpose in Your Tomorrow. God does have a perfect plan for you, and it's time to embrace your life's purpose. It's time to move forward. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash forward. Sometimes the best way to learn something new is to reconsider what you think you already know. That's certainly the case when it comes to angels. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah looks at some familiar types of angels, clarifies their purpose, and shatters some popular myths. Continuing his series, Angels, here's David to introduce today's message, Angels You Have Heard About. Well, thank you for joining us today. By the way, do you know the difference between a seraphim and a cherubim? Well, if you stay tuned for the next two days, you will. And what about Michael and Gabriel? Two angels who have names. What was their purpose? Did they have unique responsibilities? We'll find out about that as well as we study angels here on Turning Point. Today's lesson is called Angels You Have Heard About. And uh, we'll get to it in just a moment. But I want you to know that you can get all the information about angels right here at Turning Point by doing one thing. Send a gift of any size to Turning Point during the month of July. And when you send your gift, ask for your copy of the book, Angels. And we'll send it to you. It'll be in your possession before you know it. And you'll have all the information that we are sharing on Turning Point, and you'll have much more because we can't always get it all in. And there's a beautiful, uh, beautiful subject guide and a an index for all the scriptures. This book is prepared for you to study angels. And the study guide that you can get will help you if you want to share this with others in a small group. So today we're going to talk about angels you have heard about. And we'll put a little bit of uh, personality around some of these angels and straighten out some of the rumors that you may have heard about them as we open our Bibles together. And here is part one of Angels You Have Heard About. In his 1990 book, Angels and Endangered Species, Malcolm Godwin estimates that over the last 30 years, one in every 10 popular songs mentions an angel. Of course, that's just romantic fun. But now we've graduated to a whole new level. In our culture, we take angels seriously. In Newsweek's November 28, 1994 issue, an article titled In Search of the Sacred observed that 20% of Americans have had a revelation from God in the last year, and 13% of the American people said they had seen or sensed the presence of an angel in their life. It was midsummer 1994, and Kevin and Cindy Cathcart drove their 1993 Ford Bronco on Interstate 40, heading west from Albuquerque to Gallup, New Mexico. Kevin drove while Cindy sat in the passenger seat, and Tipper, their five-year-old golden retriever, relaxed in the back. Suddenly, Kevin saw a huge tire attached to an axle flying through the air in front of them. The next thing he remembers is sitting behind the wheel of his car with broken glass, rain, and blood 
all over his face and neck. A tire from an eastbound 18-wheeler had shot across the median and hit the Bronco, causing an explosion which sounded like a bomb. In the providence of God, Kevin's cuts were superficial, Cindy sustained a knee injury, and Tipper came through unharmed. The word miracle was commonly heard around the accident scene, and the Cathcarts firmly believed that God sent an angel to shield them from death. A few days later, the Cathcarts received a 10th anniversary gift from their friends Lila and Dan Rhodes. When they opened their gift, they were stunned, especially after learning that Lila had made the purchase about the time of the accident without knowing it had happened. You guessed it. The box contained a small crystal angel reminding them of what they believe they had experienced. This story was told by Ken Gangle in the Dallas Seminary Quarterly. And while we listened to it, we asked ourselves the question, did this really happen? Did an angel intervene? Now, we know that angelic intervention was common in Bible days. We believe in angels because the Bible is filled with truth about them. But when people talk about angels today, do we believe there are modern stories? In our study, we're trying to learn all we can from the almost 300 references in the Bible concerning angels. We've already discovered some things that are important. We've discovered that angels were created by God before the foundations of the world were laid. We have learned that the number of angels has neither decreased nor increased since their creation, for all the angels of the whole universe were brought into being at exactly the same time. Many of the terms that are used to describe these angels we have learned are terms of fire and burning. And some scholars believe that the angels are actually created out of the same substance as the stars of the heavens. When we met the last time, we looked at dozens of verses that taught us that the angels of God are innumerable, they are invisible, they are invincible, they are immortal, and they are intrigued by our salvation. I want to take some time in perhaps the more technical of all the messages we will preach on angels to show you just how organized God is with regard to the angelic hosts. Sometimes we wonder if we talk about angels, do they just flit around the heavens as they please, doing their own thing? Or are they under some design and organizational plan? A careful study of both the Old and the New Testament presents the angels as organized and under the direct authority of the Almighty God. Now, one of the terms that is often used to describe angels in the Bible is the term hosts. It is a wonderful word which literally tells us a lot about the angelic beings in the world. The word host comes from a Hebrew word and a Greek word, and it means a well-trained army, one that is prepared for war. Angels, you see, respond just like soldier under a general's command. Their loyalty is unquestioned and their obedience is instantaneous. In the book of Revelation, as John talks about the war at the end of the age, he speaks about the angels of God and he uses military language, which is what the word host suggests. 
Read with me Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Who is the one seated upon the horse? That is the Lord Jesus. And who is his army? It is the angelic hosts who follow him into the battle. The great reformer John Calvin said that angels are called God's hosts because as bodyguards surround their prince, they adorn his majesty and render it conspicuous. And like soldiers, they are ever intent upon their leader's standard. And as soon as he beckons, they gird themselves for the work. In other words, the hosts of heaven are the armies of God, and the armies of God are the angels of his creation. God's angels are organized and under authority. Thomas Aquinas was a great church father who wrote much about angels. In fact, he believed that there was a very, very structured hierarchy of angelic beings. He had nine different levels of angels. He said the angels were organized like this. The cherubim, the seraphim, the thrones, the dominations, the powers, the virtues, the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. And he had it all set up on a chart. And while he was right about some of the names for the angels, we have no reason to believe that his organizational chart is any better than anyone else's because it is not so presented in the scripture. But you will be surprised how many places in the Bible We are told of the organization of the angels. For instance, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Now watch this. Whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Ephesians 6.12 suggests the very same thing. Read this verse. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that a very similar organizational plan to God's angelic chart is also operative in the world of the wicked angels. All of this is to say that there are at least four different tiers of hierarchy in the angelic realm. And those four are thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. God has organized his angels so that they are inefficient, well-oiled, well-instructed, well-prepared, well-trained army, far more prepared than any military installation has ever been on the face of this earth. And when the commander-in-chief speaks... He has the system in place to deploy his angels wherever he sees fit. Now, some of these angels have their own purpose and terms. And one of the things that's been so interesting to me as I've studied this is to discover all the different things that angels do. Each of the angels has a job. Each of them has a personal responsibility. They're not all just the same. Some of them are constructed differently so that they can do the things that God has called them to do. Let's take, for instance, the term seraphim. In the Old Testament, we learn of the seraphim. In fact, in just one passage in all of the Bible, we are told about the angels who go by the name seraphim. That passage is a wonderful passage from the book of Isaiah. And let's read this passage in your heart as I read it aloud. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now Isaiah in his vision saw God seated on his throne in the temple. Flying above God were these astonishing beings called seraphim. The word seraphim literally means burning ones. These angels apparently dwelled so close to the presence of God that they burn with holy brilliance. And the Bible describes them like this. They have six wings. Isaiah says with two wings they cover their faces in reverence. This reminds us of the majestic glory of God. The Bible says that no man has ever seen God and lived. And even the angels have to protect themselves from the brilliance of the glory of God when they're in his presence. What a picture of the reverence and adoring awe that we all should have for our Heavenly Father. Isaiah says with two wings the angels cover their face and with two they cover their feet. This speaks of the reverence of waiting on God for his next direction. Covered feet in the eastern mind denote deep humility. And then the Bible says with two wings they did fly. The two wings propel them back and forth above the Lord. And this pictures the speed with which they can carry out the will of God. The seraphim are six-winged creatures. Not a few students of the word of God have noted that these creatures who were created primarily to worship God have six wings. Four of them are for worship and two of them are for work. And someone has reminded us that in our day we seem to have reversed the priority. We work twice as hard and worship not very much. We would do well to emulate the seraphim in our serving of the Lord God. Now, if you read Isaiah carefully, you will also discover that these seraphim angels have features like humans, like hands and feet and voices. One seraphim carried a burning coal from the altar in his hand and touched it to Isaiah's lips. The voices of the seraphim were so loud, according to Isaiah, that they shook the doorpost in the temple. They call back and forth, announcing the Lord's holy character. Now, as far as we know, this is the only passage that is clearly a passage about the seraphim, but I want you to look at one additional one in the New Testament, which in my humble estimation certainly must be the seraphim because of the way they are described. Read with me Revelation 4, 6 through 8. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Six wings like the seraphim in Isaiah. And what is their message? It is the same message as the angels in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The seraphim. That's all we know in the Bible about this class of angels. Apparently just for the worship of God around the throne. And then there's another class of angels that we sometimes read about. And those are the cherubim. Short for that is cherubs, and we know that word quite well. The word cherub means basically to be diligent. 
And the cherubs are the angels that stand close to God's throne. And I need to tell you, friends, and listen carefully, they don't even vaguely resemble the pudgy, naked Valentine babies that we usually think of as cherubs. I want you to know that. Now, I wish we had time to read an extended passage about cherubs in Ezekiel chapter 1, but it would take far too long. But let me just encourage you to write this down in your notes, and you will be overwhelmed at the information in that chapter concerning the cherubim. And in case you're not sure about this, and in case you don't read it, let me give you a little summary about what the passage says. Charles Dyer, who was a great expositor of the Word of God, has written a little summary about the cherubim, and it's really interesting to listen to his description of these creatures taken right from the book of Ezekiel. He says, The general appearance of the living beings was somewhat like a man. However, they would never be mistaken for humans. They each had four faces and four wings. Now, here's something to remember. How many wings do the seraphim have? Six. How many wings do the cherubim have? Four, they're different creatures. They're created different by our God of all creativity. And according to Dyer, the scripture says the cherubim's leg were straight, which implies they were standing upright, but their feet were calf-like instead of human. They were burnished like bronze. Ezekiel said the four cherubim also had human-like hands, having four faces on four sides of their heads. Can you imagine that? And being connected in a square, they were able to travel in a straight direction and to change direction without ever turning. What an incredible discussion. You know, that's not the angel that I pictured when I first started this series. And I dare say if a cherub were to walk on this platform, you wouldn't all go, ah, you would fall on your faces as dead men as most of the people did when they were confronted by the holy angels of God. Ezekiel, after describing all of these creatures with the four faces and the hands and all of the rest, in Ezekiel 10.20, he wrote, This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar, and I knew they were cherubim, the cherubs. Unlike other angels, the cherubim never convey instructions or messages from God to human beings. They are never directly called angels. And yet, the thing that intrigues me as I've studied this this week is, in the Old Testament, far more than the seraphim who appear only in one passage in Isaiah 6, the cherubim are everywhere in the history of Israel. The cherubim were very prominent in the Old Testament chronology of God's chosen people. For instance, the cherubim first appear in the Old Testament when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden for their sin. Do you remember that? He evicted them. And in Genesis 3, 23 and 24, we read, Therefore the Lord God sent Adam out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Someone has reminded us that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and put the angels there to teach us that sin and paradise are incompatible. The cherubim are also found in the tabernacle which Moses was instructed to build for the worship of the people. Do you remember that? When God was giving the instruction to Moses, he gave him detailed instruction, not only about the tabernacle itself, but about every single piece of furniture that was to go inside. And one of the more prominent pieces of furniture was that which is called the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the Ark of the Covenant, according to the word of God, was to be decorated with golden cherubim. Listen to these words from Exodus 25, 18 to 20. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat, and their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. In the construction of the tabernacle furniture, the cherubim were central. And they are important because the Bible says that they were covering the mercy seat where the presence of God was dwelling. God dwelt in the presence of the mercy seat. Psalm 99.1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Now, not only were the cherubim designed in the furniture of the tabernacle, they were also woven into the very curtains that hung in the tabernacle. They wove the design of the cherubim into the curtains. Exodus 26, 1 says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, blue and purple and scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim you shall weave them. When you walked into the tabernacle of Israel, you would not be surprised to see cherubim everywhere at the Ark of the Covenant, woven into all of the curtains, as if to remind the people of God that his angelic host ever stood ready at their need. And then when the tabernacle was done away with and it was time to build the permanent structure, the wonder of the world called Solomon's Temple was constructed. And when Solomon's Temple was built, the skilled workmen carved the designs of the cherubim into the walls and the doors, and they actually built two huge figures of cherubim and put them in the temple. First Kings tells us about this. In an extended passage, it says, Inside the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. Get a picture of this now. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. And the height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. And then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched one wall, and the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Do you get the picture? It was a huge, impressive reminder to the people of God of the angelic presence in their midst. The seraphim and the cherubim, the Bible teaches about them. Well, we'll have some more about angels you have heard about tomorrow um, and hope you'll join us then. I mentioned to you last week that we're going back to our fall rallies and you'll be able to get tickets for these events beginning uh, on the 12th of July, which is next Monday. Here's where we're going to be. In Tampa, Florida, we'll be in the Yingling Center. In Jacksonville, Florida, we'll be in the Star Veterans Memorial Auditorium. In Houston, we'll be in the Berry Center and in Fort Worth, Texas, in Dickey's Arena. So these are places where we want you to come. Let's get back out of our uh, cocooning and get back to these events which bring so much joy to our hearts. I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. We've had a whole year with no, no events like this, and I've really missed them. I've missed being in your community and sharing the excitement of being together. And so uh, be sure to ask for your tickets 
when you call or write beginning on the 12th of July. Once again, the tickets are free, but you must have a ticket to attend. It's the only way we can manage this. And so we ask you to order the tickets. They will be sent to you in the mail. You will have them in plenty of time for the event. You can get tickets uh, for yourself and others. If you need more information about this event or how you can bring a group to this event, how you can get more tickets than one, go to our website, and there you will see a place called um, Tours. And when you push the tour button, you'll be able to unfold all of this, and you'll see everything you need to know about these events. And I hope you will do it. I think we need to really work hard at getting back together and and uh, drawing the strength that we can from each other in this time when we've been separated. Uh, and uh, in, in many places, people have been separated for a long time and are still separated. We need to come back together, and uh, we'll tell you more about it as we get closer. Tampa, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, Houston, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, coming up in October, and we hope you'll join us then. And we'll see you right here tomorrow for the next edition of Turning Point. information on Dr. Jeremiah's current teaching series, Angels, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, ask for your copy of David's book, Angels, Who They Are and How They Help, What the Bible Reveals. It will help you separate fact from fiction about angels, and it's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices, or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to instantly access our content. Get all the details when you visit our website at davidjeremiah.org radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series Angels, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. The phrase, a baker's dozen, meaning 13 instead of the usual 12 per dozen, supposedly originated in the Middle Ages. In England, there were severe punishments for bakers or merchants found guilty of shortchanging their customers, so bakers began including an extra item to avoid accusations of cheating, and customers enjoyed getting 13 for the price of 12. Though God has never been accused of cheating, 
he has his own version of the baker's dozen. According to Ephesians 3.20, God always does more than we think he's going to do. Exceedingly more, Paul writes, a baker's dozen is good, but a divine dozen, that's even better. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's generosity on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.